Let's open to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis and the first chapter. Lord willing, next week we will launch into the Gospel of John. Of course, the first few verses of John remind us instantly of Genesis chapter 1. This is the time of year when millions of people are returning to school. And kids, I don't know how happy you are about that. I would like to preach a message this morning, as I did three years ago, to prepare us for what's going to be happening over the next nine months. Our church is located in a university town. We have visiting scholars from all over the world who come to Clemson to study. They are pursuing degrees in a vast variety of subjects. We have teachers and professors in our church and people with terminal degrees and graduate students pursuing the same. We have mothers who educate their children in home schools and through co-ops. Some of you study the human body to advance the discipline of medicine. Some study engineering and electricity to advance technology. Some study horticulture, business, economics, and politics with a view to improving society. And some of you are retirees, and you finally have enough time to start learning, right? My question to all of us on the threshold of a new school year is, why should a Christian become educated? If you're going to spend three quarters of your year pursuing education, or the education of your children, don't you suppose you should have a really good reason for doing this? I mean, why are we doing this? What's the whole point? In his book, The End of Education, the late professor of education, Neil Postman, argues that every teacher faces two problems. He writes, in considering how to conduct the schooling of our young, adults have two problems to solve. One is an engineering problem. The other, a metaphysical one. The engineering problem, as all such problems are, is essentially technical. It is a problem of the means by which the young will become learned. The first problem concerns how to transfer information from one mind to another. How to transfer concepts from the teacher's mind to the student's. The problem is concerned with pedagogical techniques. It's concerned with classroom technology. It concerns learning environments and student-teacher ratios and such things. That's the engineering problem. How do you leverage information and skills between two minds? The more fundamental problem is the metaphysical problem, and that's a very sophisticated way of just asking the question, why? Like, why are we involved in education? Not how to learn, but why should we learn? 
And that's the question that I want to address today. Why learn? This isn't all about academics. This is going to be about theology. Postman writes perceptively, without a narrative, without a narrative, life has no meaning. Without meaning, learning has no purpose. Without a purpose, schools are houses of detention, not attention. So let's talk about purpose. People often view education as a means to wealth, to fame, to success, or simply to satisfy curiosity. But have you ever noticed how unhappy the wealthy tend to be? Have you noticed that success and fame can be miserable taskmasters? Have you noticed the drive to satisfy curiosity easily becomes a joyless obsession? So what's the purpose? Like, why learn anything at all? Postman says we need a narrative if we're going to find meaning and purpose in education. Otherwise, schools become nothing more than glorified daycares. Just park your kids there until 3 o'clock. And what happens when education lacks any kind of coherent narrative, any kind of coherent story of reality? Well, let's ask a student named Rebecca Porteous, a Harvard student. In Finding God at Harvard, Rebecca describes her college experience deprived of the Christian narrative, the biblical worldview. Here's what she writes. What motivated people to paint, to teach, to create? I was frustrated and disappointed with my English professors for focusing only on the historical background and the stylistic analysis of novels, avoiding discussions about the questions that had impelled the authors to write. Classes on human nature, morality, and society systematically ignored ultimate questions. What does it really mean to be a human being? This question was dismissed as unworthy of academic consideration. And she concludes, a student who is never challenged to ask such questions may be a student radically divorced from the possibility that a God exists and that in knowing a loving God, he might find the purpose of human existence and that in experiencing his love expressed in Jesus Christ might find a hope for life. Well, that's a very sad commentary. You can attend a premier university and learn nothing. I'm sorry, learn everything but the most important things. And life has no purpose. Now, Neil Postman, again, who so far as I know was not even a believer, writes in The End of Education, quote, We need a story. One that tells of origins and envisions of future. A story that constructs ideas and gives a sense of continuity and purpose. We need a great narrative. One that has sufficient credibility, complexity, and symbolic power to enable one to organize one's life around it. 
And Postman goes on to identify several failed narratives. My own life has been contemporaneous with the emergence of three catastrophic narratives. The narratives of communism, fascism, and Nazism, each of which held out the promise of heaven but led only to hell. And Postman is correct. Since the Enlightenment, Western civilization has tried many alternatives to the Christian narrative, loosely centered on the assumption of human progress. Postmodernism now questions whether any narrative has served us well and whether the whole idea of progress is simply a myth. The problem with so many modern narratives is they all begin in the wrong place. So where should we begin? John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, said there are two basic kinds of knowledge, and only two. He says we can know God, and we can know His world. That is, we can know the Creator, and we can know the creation. That's it. To put it more precisely, Calvin argues we know God by knowing His creation, and we know creation by knowing God. Now look at the first statement the Bible makes about reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are two basic kinds of reality. First is God. Second is creation. Eastern monism conflates these two. Brahman is Atman. But the Bible views them as distinct. And this is why Calvin says there are two kinds of knowledge. We can know God and we can know His creation. That's pretty simple, isn't it? We can know God and we can know His creation. All human learning involves us discovering the Creator or discovering His creation. Now observe another first. Genesis 1, verse 26. This is the first statement the Bible makes about our humanity. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. If indeed we are made in the image and likeness of God, then Calvin is correct. We come to know God by knowing His creation, and we know His creation by knowing God. They are intertwined. They are inseparable. The Creator explains His creation, and the creation reveals its Creator. But here's our problem. In our very modern world, we are taught to completely separate theology from the classroom. 
It's fine to acquire knowledge of God on Sundays at your local church, but don't let that come seeping into the classroom Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday is revealed for the pursuit of real knowledge, scientific knowledge, right? Sunday's okay if you want to find out something about God. Calvin says these are intertwined, and you cannot know one without the other. It's impossible. Now, what happens when you divorce the Creator from His creation? The answer, in one word, is absurdity. Absurdity. Every attempt to divorce the Creator from His creation ends in absurdity. The French atheist and existentialist, Albert Camus, got it right when he spoke of attempts to understand justice or ethics without God. He writes, God is denied in the name of justice, but can the idea of justice be understood without the idea of God? At this point, are we not in the realm of absurdity? That's an atheist. I rather enjoy reading modern attempts to circumvent Genesis 1 and verse 1. It's actually quite delightful. Physicist Edward Tryon writes, Our universe did indeed appear from nowhere about 10 to the 10 power years ago. Our universe is simply one of those things which happen from time to time. Israeli physicist Gerald Schroeder, describing, quote, mainstream science coming from such universities as Princeton and MIT, writes, there is the growing possibility that for all existence, we humans included, there's nothing, nothing as in no thing there. The highly venerated American philosopher Robert Nozick attempts to describe the origin of the universe from nothing. He writes, nothing is a vacuum force sucking things into non-existence or keeping them there. If this force, nothing, acts upon itself, it sucks nothingness into nothingness, producing something or perhaps everything. British astrophysicist John Gribbon, a prolific author, wrote a book titled, In the Beginning. You can imagine that got my attention. In the Beginning. He writes, the consensus is that yes, indeed, universes can be born out of nothing at all. Bizarre though it may seem, if you could squeeze a kilogram of butter or anything else hard enough to make a black hole, that black hole would be the seed of a new universe as big as or bigger than our own. The technology is not so far-fetched and would involve a super-powerful hydrogen bomb explosion somewhere in space at a safe distance from the Earth. It is even conceivable that our universe was manufactured deliberately in this way as part of a scientific experiment by a technologically advanced race in another universe. Last I checked, nothing does not include butter, aliens, aliens and hydrogen bombs. That's in the beginning. So where do these ideas come from? Nobel laureate physicist Steven Weinberg put it succinctly, quote, cosmologists endorse theories because they nicely avoid the problem of Genesis. 
And what is the problem of Genesis? Verse 1, fourth word, God. That's the problem. You either embrace God or you embrace absurdity. And if you choose absurdity, what then becomes of verse 26? If I'm not made in the image and likeness of God, well, then who am I? Well, let's ask Steven Weinberg. He writes, It is almost irresistible for humans to believe that we have some special relation to the universe, that human life is not just a more or less farcical outcome of a chain of accidents reaching back to the first three minutes, but that we are somehow built in from the beginning. He says that's what we want to believe. But he notes, we face a future of extinction, of endless cold or intolerable heat. And he insists the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. Weinberg taught at Harvard. He's exactly the kind of professor that Rebecca Porteous spoke of. Your life is pointless, absurd. Another professor at Harvard and at Cornell was the astrophysicist Thomas Gold. Trying to explain the origin of mankind, Gold proposed the accidental, accidental panspermia option. It's also known as, quote, the garbage theory. David Darlin summarizes, among Gold's many other original and frequently unorthodox ideas was his garbage theory of the origin of life. He suggested that biological contaminants accidentally left behind by interstellar survey parties could introduce life to a previously sterile or prebiotic world. He envisioned a group of extraterrestrial visitors, aliens, having a picnic somewhere on the young earth. What if they dropped a few crumbs of food and from the microbes in those crumbs we eventually evolved? You are nothing more than cosmic garbage? Friends, there are two kinds of knowledge. There is knowledge of the Creator... And there is knowledge of His creation, and they are so indissolubly united that to deny the Creator is to embrace absurdity. No exceptions. So how are we going to avoid absurdity? Our culture, friends, will never make forward progress without going back. Going back and recovering the central story that gave rise to the modern university in the first place. Here we are in a university town. Ever wonder where the university came from? Fifty miles southwest of Paris, the cruciform, that's the cross shape, the cruciform floor plan of Chartres Cathedral stamps across into the earth. And on that cursed root, a massive Gothic church rises into the heavens. That cathedral symbolizes the Christian conviction that a Roman instrument of death united heaven and earth, creator and creation. 
That 13th century cathedral, which took a quarter century to build, is an architectural embodiment of the biblical narrative of redemption. The sunlight just pours through biblical scenes, which are etched in stained glass. It descends down the columns and it scatters on the floor below. Shards soaring towers, its flying buttresses, its vaulted ceilings, its clear story windows create this longing in the visitor for the new Jerusalem. And when you enter Shart's main doors on the western facade, you walk beneath a magnificently carved tympanum, which is the area just above the door. At the center, the incarnated and resurrected Son of God sits. His right hand is uplifted, displaying the wound that he received at Golgotha. And when you look above him, he is surrounded by angelic beings. He is surrounded by these heavenly beings. But what's very curious is also above him, carved into the archivolts, are personifications of the seven liberal arts, as well as seven ancient philosophers. Christ is seated at the center of the liberal arts and the great philosophers. The entrance communicates the great truth that when the incarnate Son of God unites heaven and earth, education discovers its center. And the students would go through that entrance and into the cathedral where they would study literally the universe. Everything that could possibly be known about the universe, they would learn there in the cathedral schools. To know the incarnate Son of God is to know both Creator and creation. That was the medieval conviction. The incarnation just obliterates the divide between the secular and the sacred The incarnation pulls those together. Can I say it this way without getting myself in trouble? Medieval scholars were incarnational humanists. Now, I know we don't like the term humanist, and that's because that term was stolen by the secular humanist. But secular humanism is a heretical departure from Christian incarnational humanism. We like the term humanities, right? It's the same thing. In the Middle Ages and the Reformation, they studied humanism. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, these were humanists, humanist scholars, Christian humanists, incarnational humanists, because they believed the incarnation authenticated humanity. The incarnation pulled heaven and earth together in the person of Jesus Christ. So the goal of medieval scholars was to construct a cathedral of knowledge, knowledge of God and His world so that we can worship the Creator in beauty and in truth. That was the goal of education. And friends, medieval Christians were not alone. Christians, ancient and modern, have recognized that skill in the liberal arts and a knowledge of the Incarnation were indispensable to a true knowledge of God and His world. The entrance of that church dramatically portrays the conviction 
that when you put Christ at the center of human learning, it finds direction, it finds purpose. And now it was out of those churches, those cathedral schools, that the universities grew. And those universities originally were founded to give students access to the universe. That's the whole point. To help them understand the entire universe because it all belongs to God and Jesus reigns over it all. That was the original purpose of the university. It was to give students the tools to know God and His creation, the tools of history, math, science, art, music, and drama, and most importantly, the queen of all the disciplines, theology. Those schools taught that you could indeed find, me- find meaning and purpose in the story of the universe so long as you embrace Christ at the center. With Christ at the center, you find meaning. Now, let's turn to John chapter 14. And let me show you why it is that we really do need to keep Christ at the center of all human learning. If indeed there are two realities to be discovered, then the incarnation, friends, is the intersection between those realities. The incarnation is where creator and creation come together. By knowing Jesus, we know both, creator and creation. Isn't that beautiful? In John chapter 14, Jesus has a conversation with two disciples, Thomas and Philip. And these disciples want to know God the Father. And don't you? They want to know the God of Genesis 1 and verse 1. And Jesus told them he would return to the Father and prepare a place for them. So let's watch this develop. Verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, friends, wouldn't you like to go to that place, to the Father's house? Well, how do you get there? Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be awesome. And then he says this, and you know the way to where I am going. Now you have to read verse 4 as a kind of interrogative, the kind of interrogative that a good teacher uses when he knows his students are not quite certain of the answer. And you know the way to where I'm going? I'm suggesting that interpretation because the subsequent conversation reveals the disciples are really quite confused about where Jesus is going and how to get there. So verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Answer, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, friends, be very careful. Our tendency is to stop at verse 6 and view Jesus exclusively as an intermediary between God and man. And he certainly is that. But there's more. 
Jesus is an altogether different kind of prophetic intermediary than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Hosea. These prophets receive God's word and then transmit it to the people. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. If you had known me, that's what education is about, knowledge. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, can you imagine Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Hosea saying something like that? Absolutely impossible. Can you imagine me saying something like that? If you know me, you know God. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' claim eclipses everything any previous prophet ever taught. To know me is to know God the Father. Jesus was not merely speaking for God. He was speaking as God. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. If God the Father came in a human body to Galilee and Jerusalem, what would He do? What would He say? What miracles would He perform? Well, the answer to all those questions is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. God the Father would not look like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah. He would look just like Jesus. Now, have you noticed, and I've mentioned this before, that when you read the Old Testament, that God's voice is just ubiquitous. That means it's just everywhere. We hardly stop to think, well, where's that voice coming from? It's just there. His voice permeates hundreds of narratives. God speaks to Abraham, to Moses, to David. In fact, ten times in the first chapter of Genesis, we hear the words, and God said, like, where's that voice coming from? It's just there. It's always present in the narrative. The voice of God out of heaven is just universally present. But curiously, when you turn to the gospel narratives, that voice becomes almost completely silent. Like, where's the voice? At Jesus' baptism, a voice comes ringing out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Eleven words. And then silence. Now follow Jesus through Galilee, and He will say the most extraordinary things. In the Sermon on the Mount, He will say, You have always heard, quote in the Old Testament, voice of God. And then He will gladly proceed to say, Well, but I say unto you, as if everything He says is every bit as important as everything or anything that God thundered from the Mount of Sinai. It's all the same. And after following Jesus through Galilee, we come at long last to the Mount of Transfiguration. And the voice from Sinai returns. And here's what it says. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Exactly what the voice said at Christ's baptism. And then it adds, listen to him. And it goes silent. What's the point? If you have been carefully observing the life of Jesus every step along the way, you would have seen God the Father. 
He perfectly reveals the Creator. That voice of the Father doesn't come ringing out of heaven. It proceeds from the mouth of a man. And bring all that back now to our text. Jesus says to Thomas, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And keep reading. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is extraordinary. Nothing changes. God the Father does not suddenly reveal himself. When Jesus says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. You have seen the Father when you see me. You know the Father when you know me. It's just that simple. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. But apparently the disciples still don't understand what Jesus is saying to them. So Philip enters the conversation. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's like, did you not understand anything I just said? Show us the Father, it is enough for us. Jesus, just show us God the Father already, we'll just be happy. And notice Jesus' response. It's really a stunning rebuke of his ignorance. Jesus said to him, quote, have, I been so, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you want to know God the Father, friends, you have to know a human, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is introducing a revolutionary new idea, a whole new way of thinking about God. You know God by knowing a man. You know the Creator by knowing the creation. It's exactly what he's saying. Recall what Calvin said, there are two kinds of knowledge. There is knowledge of the Creator and there is knowledge of the creation. And in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, we discover both Creator and creature. Creator and creature indissolubly, perfectly, and eternally united. God became what He made. The Creator became a creature in order to restore the creation to the Creator. And I know when you start talking this way, Christians like, is this really true? This almost sounds heretical. Friends, if you don't talk this way, you're a heretic. Because people who didn't talk this way were all condemned by the early church. You must embrace the complete humanity of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. So friends, Christianity is a story of a creator God who visits his fallen planet. The creator of endless galaxies confined within the womb of a young Palestinian girl. It is the biggest story in the smallest space. Christianity is the story of a God who sleeps, who hungers, who cries, a God who bleeds. The God who starves in the burning wilderness ruined by Adam's sin. The God betrayed by the ones he loves. A God whose life is valued less than a criminal. The God who is humiliated, 
tortured, and finally murdered. The story begins with God exposing the nakedness of His image bearers who ate of the forbidden tree. And it ends with the image bearers exposing the nakedness of God, nailing Him to the forbidden tree. But that's not the end. For all the shame and suffering He endured, He came back in three days permanently incarnated. He came back despite everything that we did to Him as a human. You can touch the scars in the hands of God. Jesus breathed on His disciples. He ate with them. You can trace His footprints on the road to Emmaus. The creation account emphasized three cardinal elements of your humanity. Flesh, bones, and breath. I've emphasized these previously. Don't forget them. Flesh, bones, and breath. God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And God formed Eve from Adam's bones. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the resurrection accounts reiterate those three cardinal elements of our humanity. John's account tells us Jesus breathed on His disciples. And Luke's Gospel tells us Jesus said, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Flesh and bones, as you see that I have. The incarnate Christ returned to inaugurate a whole new humanity, a whole new creation in Himself. That's the Christian view of the world. In the story of the incarnation, we find the greatest, frankly, the greatest possible answer to Postman's question, why? Why learn? Friends, Christianity is not only a great narrative, it is the greatest possible narrative. God becoming human to resurrect us all into a new creation. So let me give you just four reasons now in conclusion why I believe, personally, the incarnation should shape your thinking about education. Whether you are in kindergarten or pursuing a PhD or going into retirement and still learning... Go on learning all that you can about God right up until the day that you die because you're just going to keep doing that right through eternity. So just go right on learning everything possible that you can. We have some great retirees here, by the way. I won't start naming people. I'm seeing them as I look out who just retire and they just go right on learning. I get emails from them asking for sources from time to time and they give me help. It's It's just phenomenal. Never stop learning. Let me give you four reasons. First of all, the story of the incarnation is universally applicable. It's a story for anyone and for everyone. It is universal in its appeal because it appeals to our universal human human problem of pain and suffering and death. It is a story of infinite love poured into our broken human condition. It's a story of a God who suffered too. The incarnation is a story of infinite power poured into the resurrection of a new humanity, of a God who became human, of a God who remains human. It is a story for all who suffer 
and all suffer. Second, the story of the Incarnation answers life's ultimate questions. Do not tell me that we are nothing more than cosmic garbage. Don't tell me that. That does not resonate with me at all. That makes no sense to me. I have a deep sense that there's something more to me than cosmic garbage. Don't you? We have a narrative that God walked into. In Christ, you meet your Creator. In Christ, you discover how God defeats evil. In Christ, you discover your humanity, both your body and your soul, is valuable to God. In Christ, you discover that human history has purpose and direction. I once had a student who came to discuss with me the troubles that she had growing up in Christianity. She spent her entire life in Christian schools, youth groups, and churches. And she looked at me very seriously and she said, I think I'm a Buddhist now. I just am not satisfied with Christianity. And so I asked her simply to read Buddhist texts. And just to see how many of life's really important questions they they answered for her. Just go ahead and do it. Questions like, where did the world come from? Do I have a soul? What happens when I die? Does my life have any meaning? Why do we suffer? The Buddha literally says, those are invalid questions. That's what he says. That student came back in two weeks and she says, I'm not a Buddhist anymore. The Buddhist claims that there's only one valid question. It's this. Why do we suffer? And the answer, he says, is to recognize suffering is an illusion. It's not even real. It's not even real? Yeah, it's not even real. And that's the path to nirvana. And when you get to nirvana, you're gone, snuffed out. So you want to tell me that suffering isn't real and the end is to be gone. Well, that's absurd. The Bible never evades important questions and it never gives us absurd answers. And thirdly, the incarnation affirms God's love for His creation. When God looked at everything that He made, He said it's all very good. And guess what? God meant that. Jesus came into His creation to roll back that curse that descended from Adam. And Romans 8 and Revelation 21 teach us that creation itself has a glorious future. We're not a bunch of Gnostics. We believe in a future creation. And Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that even right now, Even right now, Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. There's your theory of everything if you're in physics, right? Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. The Logos speaks everything into existence at every moment of time. Friends, if at every moment of time Jesus is keeping the billions of stars out there just swirling about in endless galaxies if He is sustaining the orbit of every electron around its nucleus, if He is breathing life into all of His creatures, doesn't that suggest that we should find some interest in what Jesus is interested in? 
Friends, I don't know of any greater justification for science than the truth that Christ himself is personally and redemptively interested in everything that he made. We think of the Logos as the Word of God, but frankly, the whole world is the Logos of God. Everything is spoken into existence by God. Go discover it all. It's all the Logos of God. Go engage in science. In 1959, Eugene Wigner delivered a very famous paper at New York University. It was titled, get this, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics and the Natural Sciences. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing scientists or math, mathematicians out here. All right? They probably know about this paper. Here's what he asked. How did evolution program our brains to use the vehicle of mathematics to understand the wonders of the universe? Like, why is this even possible that my brain in here can use the vehicle of, not my brain, Ben Case's brain, right? Can use the vehicle of mathematics to understand the whole universe. How is that even possible? You know what his answer was? He used the same word four times. Here's the word, miracle. That we can even understand the world through mathematics is a miracle, He says, a miracle for which we should be grateful. But he never tells us to whom we are to be grateful. Well, that's absurd. You can't be grateful with no object to give thanks to. Friends, Jesus upholds all creation by the word of his power, and he invites you to go discover it. The modern world has a very backwards view of science. We are taught that God, if he happens to exist, owes His existence to science. Truth be told, science owes its existence to God. And fourthly and finally, the incarnation affirms our humanity. You have eternal life because God became eternally human in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come back to life embodied so that you can come back to life disembodied. It's not going to happen. Your body is going to be resurrected. So why should we study the humanities? Why should we become good incarnational humanists? Here's why. Because Jesus is human. I mean, do you need a better reason than the humanity of God? Study history because that's the story that God entered. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he claimed authority over the whole story. Throughout all time, to the very end, it's all mine. Well, why wouldn't you be interested in the history of human civilization? I mean, Jesus is reigning over it all. Why wouldn't you have some interest in that? That's, that's absurd not to have an interest in history. Thank you very much. Uh, how about literature? Study literature to discover the depths of human emotion the triumphs of human joys, and the complexities of human relationships. You know, friends, Jesus came to experience all of this. Study art and music and beauty and human creativity because the first thing that your Bible tells you about your Savior is that He is a creator. And if He redeems you to be like Him, then He redeemed you to create. Now go out and create music and art and beauty. Friends, Christ paid a tremendous price to redeem His creation, including the liberation 
of our humanity, and that is the foundation for the liberal arts. The liberal arts, by the way, developed in ancient Greece. These were the arts that free people could engage in. If you were a slave, you got vocational training, you could do one thing, and that's it. If you were a free person, you got training to understand the whole world, the liberal arts. Friends, it's the incarnation that liberates us. It's the incarnation that comes along and says, you're free. Your humanity is free. In fact, it's forever free. Go do science and math and history and discover the Creator and discover His world. And by the way, you're going to be doing that for eternity, so you might as well get a start on it now. Friends, I believe that we have an educational obligation to understand what God purchased for us. It really is a matter of obligation. Don't sit around and play video games all day long. Go discover what God has purchased for you. And so can I just say this in conclusion? Christians are, in fact, the only people in the world who should never ask, why do I have to go back to school? Right? Don't ask that question, why do I have to go back to school? I know, I'm in service tomorrow, I'm dreading it, okay? Got it. I'm talking to myself. Why do I have to go back to... No, I I get to go back to school. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you have taught us through your Son. And I pray, Lord, that in this new school year, as people will endeavor to learn much about the world in many different ways, Lord, that in all these endeavors... We would put Christ at the center, the center of all human learning, the center of all knowledge. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to see how Christ relates to everything, and everything relates to Christ. And I pray, Lord, for classrooms all over this country where your truth is not being taught, and where students like Rebecca are going in, That, Lord, in the vacuum of truth, that their souls would be set afire with a flame of curiosity that would lead them ultimately to Christ. And that students would find God at Harvard, at Clemson, Princeton. Lord, we even have unbelieving students that come to Bob Jones University in other Christian schools, we pray that they would find Christ in the classroom. We pray, Lord, for our mothers who are homeschooling, parents who are working with children after school on homework. Lord, in all these endeavors, we'd point people to Christ. We pray for teachers. We pray for retirees. We pray, Lord, that we would just never, ever stop learning. And that, again, all knowledge will be related to Jesus And we love him, we desire to serve him, and we pray that he would be exalted. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.